Chapter Two of With Cortez in Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. With Cortez in Mexico by George Alfred Henty. Chapter Two Bound to Unknown Parts. When Reuben Hawkshaw returned to the chamber where Diggory Beggs was in conference with the other three traders, he found that these had finished their calculations. The matter is settled, Reuben, as far as we are concerned. My three friends and myself will go equal shares in the matter. The value of the swan is to be taken as part of my contribution, and if she ever comes back again, as we hope she may do, that sum will be deducted from my share of the profits, due allowance being made for what damage or injury she may have suffered. You, it is understood, will take a share of the profits equal to ours, and one-third share will, in the first place, be set aside to be divided among the other officers and crew. It will be left entirely to you to choose your officers and men, and I need not tell you the sort of fellows to pick out for such a business. I shall see that the swan is provided with new rigging and gear, and that there is a plentiful store of all things on board, to repair any damage you may suffer from storm or foe. My good friends here are willing that the purchasing of all the stores required shall be in my hands and you shall yourself test the quality of all the provisions before the bargains are concluded, so as to see that everything is sweet and wholesome. My friends here will not appear in the affair at all, for if folks saw that four of us were concerned in the venture, they would think that it was something quite out of ordinary. All preparation will be made as quietly as possible, and it will be given out that the swan is going to make a voyage to the Levant, and that she will carry a stronger battery of guns than usual to beat off any Moorish pirates she may meet by the way. As it is known that she had a sharp fight coming homeward, it will seem only natural that we should add to her armament. I shall ride up to my agent in London to purchase for me the articles required to trade with the natives, and bid him send them round here by sea, well packed in bales. If we were to purchase so many strange articles here, it would give rise to talk, for people would wonder with whom we intended to trade such goods. Tomorrow morning you and I will make out a list of what you deem advisable for the purpose. After another hour the party sat and talked for now that the other traders had fully determined to go into the venture they were quite excited over it truly if i could but be spared from my business here i would gladly go with you myself master streatham said i have always had a longing to see strange climes and as no englishman has yet set eyes on these countries you are about to visit friend reuben i would gladly be by your side and take share in your perils and adventures. I doubt not your heart and courage, Master Jonas, Reuben replied, 
and would warrant that you would behave doughtily in case of fight with spaniard or indian but i question whether you would support the hardships of the voyage as cheerfully as you would the dangers although you may store the swan with the best provisions that money can buy a diet of naught but biscuit and salt meat palls after some weeks to say nothing of some months of it and this all the more in a hot climate where the appetite weakens and one comes to pine for dainty cakes such as our devonshire wives are famous for yes i fear i never should support that master streatham who was a large corpulent man mightily fond of the pleasures of the table agreed with a sigh besides friend jonas diggory beggs put in mistress tabitha would have her voice in the matter and however much your spirit would lead you to such an adventure i doubt whether she would let you put foot on board no it is not for us to be running after adventure nicholas turnbull said in the first place we are sober citizens and have our wives and families to think about and our business and the affairs of the town and in the next place even could we leave all these master reuben hawkshaw would not thank us for our company every foot of space is of value on the ship and men who take up space and consume food and can neither set a sail nor work a cannon are but useless encumbrances you have spoken truly master nicholas reuben said bluntly in the matter of a trip to london or even as far as the low countries we could accommodate your worshipful honours well enough but on a journey like this any man who cannot if need be drink bilge water and eat shoe leather is best at home i took a voyage once it is many years ago now to amsterdam and the owner not my good cousin here but another took a fancy to go with me and his wife must needs accompany him and verily before that voyage was over i wished i was dead i was no longer captain of the ship my owner was my captain and his wife was his we were forever putting into port for fresh bread and meat milk and eggs for she could eat none other if the wind got up but ever so little we had to run into shelter and anchor until the sea was smooth the manners of the sailors shocked her she would scream at night when a rat ran across her and would lose her appetite if a living creature of which as usual the ship was full fell from a beam onto her platter i was tempted more than once to run the ship on to a rock and make an end of us all no no a day's sail out from plymouth in a freshly launched ship on a fine day with a store of good victuals and a few flasks of good wine is a right merry business but farther than that i wish not to see a passenger on board any ship which i command the others laughed well master diggory we must be going nicholas turnbull said it is getting late tomorrow i will come over in the forenoon as you suggest and we will go through these lists more carefully and talk over prices and see what bulk they will occupy and discuss many other matters with the aid and advice of master hawkshaw there is no occasion for undue haste and yet if the thing is to be done the sooner it be done the better 
As the party went out, Reuben found his son waiting outside the door. "'Well, father?' he asked anxiously, when the three merchants had walked briskly off towards their homes. "'It is all settled, Roger. As soon as everything is prepared, the swan will sail for the Spanish main.' Roger threw his cap high in the air, with a lusty shout that startled the better passers-by, hurrying towards their homes. For it was now long after dark, and although the town watch patrolled the streets regularly, prudent citizens did not care to be abroad after nightfall. "'You silly boy,' Reuben said. "'You have lost your cap.' "'Nay, I heard it fall somewhere here,' Roger said, searching. "'Besides, a cap is a small matter one way or other.' "'Ah, here it is, floating in a pool of mud.' However, a bucket of water will set it all right in the morning. Oh, father, I feel wild with joy, only to think that all we have talked over together is going to be true, and that we are going to be the first Englishmen who ever saw the beautiful islands they talk about, and the natives with their feathers, and strange attire, and, and the Spaniards with their loaded guns, and their dungeons and gibbets. Reuben Hawkshaw put in. Not for us, father. The bottom of the sea, maybe, but not a Spanish dungeon. I hope not, my lad. Still, no man can see the future. However, I am right glad that we are to try this adventure. It is a glorious one, and will bring us honor in the eyes of all Englishmen if we succeed, to say nothing of wealth." but mind that you not let your spirits run away with your tongue. No word of this must be spoken to a soul, nor must any mention be made of it in the hearing of my cousin Mercy or the girls. The four partners in the adventure have all taken a solemn promise to each other that they will not breathe a word of it even to their wives, averring that women could never be trusted to keep a secret. Though as far as I have seen of them, Methinks a woman can keep a bridle on her tongue just as well as a man, and indeed somewhat better, since they do not loosen them with cider or wine or strong waters. But I believe myself it was not so much that they doubted whether their wives would keep the secret as whether they would approve of the enterprise, and that they made the contract together in order that each might afterwards be able to assure his wife that, for his part, he would gladly have taken her into his confidence, but that he was obliged to fall in with the wishes of his partners. It is a strange thing, Roger, but methinks that, whereas most men behave valiantly enough when it comes to blows with an enemy, a great proportion are but cowards with their wives. But why should they be, father? That is an easy question to ask, Roger, but a difficult one to answer. Maybe you will understand the matter better some day when you have taken a wife to yourself. In some matters there is no doubt that women's wits outrun those of men, and that they have a wonderful sharpness of tongue. Now a man, when things go wrong with him, speaks out loudly and roundly. He storms and he rages, but when it is over there is an end of it. Now a woman is not like that. She seems to ponder the matter over in her heart, and to bring it out, as it were, piecemeal, throwing little darts at you when you don't expect it, 
saying little things to which, from their suddenness, you can find no reply, and pricking you furiously all over, until you are ready to roar out with pain and vexation. You see, Roger, a prick hurteth more than a great cut. I should not have thought that, father. That is because you have not thought the matter over, Roger. In that fight with the Moors, many of the men were sorely cut and wounded, but you heard no cry from them. They only set their teeth the harder, and smote more furiously upon their foes. But there was no one of them all but, had he sat down suddenly on a small nail, would have roared out like a bull, and have sworn lustily for a good half-hour. So it is in domestic matters. The man rages and storms when things go wrong, and his wife, if she be a woman of judgment, holds her peace until it is over, knowing well enough that he will be at her mercy afterwards. Then she sets to work, like those gnats that come on board at Genoa, that they call mosquitoes, and startles him with shrill buzzings in his ears, and pricketh him in the tenderest spots she can find drawing but the smallest speck of blood, but causing an itching that makes him ready to tear his flesh. Your mother, Roger, was one of the best of women. She was a good housewife and an affectionate. I do not know that I ever saw her greatly ruffled in temper, but there were times when I would fly from my house and not come up from my work on board until it was time to go straight away to bed. So did she prick and sting me with her tongue, and that not shrilly or with anger, but with little things let slip, as it were, unawares, and with an air of ignorance that they in any way applied to me. No, Roger, if you will take my advice, you will make your ship your mistress. She will have her ways, but you will learn them, and you will know just how much helm she requires, and how the sails should be trimmed. But with a woman no man attains to this knowledge, and if you take my advice, you will give them a wide berth. I know, he went on, in answer to Roger's merry laugh, that this is a matter in which no man will trust to other experience than his own. Every man who takes a woman to wife thinks that he can manage her, and goes into the matter with a light heart, as if it were a mere pleasure excursion on which he is embarking whereas, in truth, it is a voyage as full of dangers and perils as that upon which we are about to adventure. Now let us turn back to our lodging, for I have nearly gone on my face four times already in these deep ruts and holes. I would that the councillors of this town could see the streets of Genoa, or Cadiz, or Amsterdam. They might then try to mend the ways of Plymouth, and make them somewhat less perilous to passengers after dark. Work began in earnest upon the following day. A number of shipwrights were set upon the hull of the Swan, which was to be thoroughly overhauled, caulked and pitched, within and without. The masts and rigging were to be carefully looked to, and every defect repaired. A new suit of sails was ordered, the old ones to be patched where the Moorish shot had torn them, so as to be of use as a second suit did any misadventure happen to the others. James Standing, the first mate, took charge of these matters, Reuben Hawkshaw assisting Diggory Beggs 
in all things relating to the stores. Greatly were the provision merchants of the town surprised at the quality of the provisions that Master Beggs ordered for the use of the swan. Nothing but fine flour of the last year's grinding, freshly killed beef and pork to be carefully salted down in barrels, and newly baked biscuits would satisfy Reuben Hawkshaw. They could scarce believe that such articles could be meant for use on shipboard, for, as a rule, the very cheapest and worst quality of everything was considered as amply good enough for the use of sailors. Then, too, the cider and beer must be neither thin nor sour, but sweet and of good body. Surely Master Biggs must have gone off his head thus to furnish his ship, for never before had a vessel sailed out of Plymouth Harbor provided after this fashion. An ample store of ropes and cordage, and of all matters required for a ship's equipage, were also laid in. To all questions as to the surprising lavishness of cost, Diggory replied, I would have the ship well found in all matters. It was but the other day that the antelope returned from a voyage to the Levant, she had lost a third of her crew from scurvy, and of the rest but six were strong enough to pull at a rope when she came into port. Did not the women follow Master Skimpole, her owner, through the streets, and cry after him that he was the murderer of their husbands, by reason of the foul victual that he had provided for their use? No, no, it will cost more to start with, but it will be cheaper in the end, for a weak crew often means the losing of a ship, besides the loss of a good name. I have never carried economy to such lengths as did Master Skimpole, but I am resolved in the future that those who sail in my ships shall have good and wholesome fare. Then, if misfortune happens, no one will be able to point to me in the streets and say that I fed my men worse than dogs, and thought only of my profits, and nothing of the lives of those who served me. Indeed, Master Diggory, after a short time, quite forgot that all this provision for the health and comfort of the crew was but the outcome of Reuben Hawkshaw's insistence, and came to regard himself with a feeling of pride as a man possessed of greater benevolence than his fellow merchants. A week after the refitting of the Swan was completed, she was afloat, with a large proportion of her stores in her hold. A ship from London came round and took up her berth alongside of her, discharging large numbers of bales and cases into her, together with six cannon, in addition to those she before carried, and a large store of ammunition. This naturally gave rise to fresh talk in the town. They say that you are fitting this swan out for a pirate, Master Beggs, one of the merchants said to him, for twelve cannon are more than a peaceful trader can positively require. Yes, if she is to meet with none but peaceful people, neighbor, but if she meets with those who are not peaceful at all, she needs just as much defense as if she were a ship of war. Master Hawkshaw had much ado to beat off the Moorish pirates, who attacked him on his last voyage, and, as the present one will be longer and more dangerous, he has put stress upon me to add much to her armament. She will have valuable cargo on her return voyage, and he has strongly urged upon me 
to provide such means of defense as may ensure her being able to beat off any who meddle with her. Besides, as far as I can read the course of politics, it seems to me that our alliance with Spain is well nigh at an end, and before the swan is on her return we may be at war with her. This in itself is good reason why I should give my master the means of defending himself stoutly. The money spent on the guns is not wasted. They will be none the worse for keeping, and should the swan on her next voyage go into a safer line of trade, I can sell them for as much as they now cost me. In the meantime, Reuben Hawkshaw had been carefully and quietly picking a crew. He was going to take with him fully twice as many as had, before, sufficed to navigate the swan. Of the forty men who had sailed with him, he had lost nine, and five others had not sufficiently recovered from their wounds to sail with him again. Of the remainder he engaged twenty, all of whom were stout and willing fellows who would, he knew, sail with him wherever he bid them. The remaining six, being given to grumbling, he would have none of, good sailors though they were. Half a dozen grumblers are enough to spoil a whole crew, he said. There was, therefore, some sixty new hands to engage. Towards these he found eighteen, who had sailed with him on previous voyages, and were glad enough to rejoin him, for he had the name of being a good captain, considerate to his men, one who would be obeyed, but who did not harass his crew, and did all he could, in reason, to make them comfortable. The others were picked up carefully, one by one. For this purpose he took some of his best men aside, and confided to them privately that the present voyage was to be out of the ordinary, and that he needed not only stout fellows, but willing and cheerful ones, men who would take hardships without grumbling, and who, with a prospect of good reward, in addition to their pay, would go without question where they were told, and do as they were ordered, were it to singe the beard of the Grand Turk himself in his own palace. He charged them, therefore, to find for him men of this kind among their relations, or men who had sailed with him. I would rather, he said, have landsmen, providing they are strong and stout-hearted, than sailors, however skillful, who are given to grumbling and disaffection. We shall have plenty of good sailors on board, and the others will soon learn their business. Therefore choose you not for seamanship, but rather for willingness and good temper, and broach not the subject to any unless you feel assured beforehand that they will be willing to join, for I want not the matter talked about. Therefore those who join are to keep the matter private, and are not to come on board until the night before we get up our anchors. We are taking a much stronger crew than usual, for we have many guns that need working, if it comes to fighting. As these instructions were given separately, none of the twelve men he spoke to knew that the others had received similar instructions, and that instead of forty men, as usual, the swan was to carry nearly ninety. As to the officers, Reuben Hawkshaw needed none others than those who had before sailed with him. The two mates had each been with him for upwards of ten years, and had learned their business under his eye, and he intended, 
although he had not as yet told him so, to rate Roger as third mate. His boatswain would go in the same capacity as before, and he shipped, as gunner, one who had served for some years in a king's ship in that rank, and was well acquainted with the working of ordnance. Mistress Mercy had, of course, heard from her gossips of the talk that was going on concerning the unusual preparations that were being made by her husband for the forthcoming voyage of the swan, and the traitor was often put to his wit's end by her questions on the subject. His professions of benevolence towards the crew, and his explanations of his reasons for her powerful armament had sufficed for others, but they by no means satisfied her. "'Do you think, Diggory Beggs,' she asked, indignantly, "'that after all these years I do not know you as well as I do the contents of my linen chest? I have never before known you open your purse-strings one inch wider than was necessary. Have I not always had to ask, until I am verily ashamed, before I can get a new gown for myself?' or a decent cloak for the girls? You have ever been hard-fisted with your money, and never disposed to spend a groat, save on good occasion. There is not the wife of a trader of your standing in Plymouth, but makes a braver show than I do, when we walk on the hoe on holidays or feast days. There is something at the bottom of all of this I don't understand. But mark you, Diggory, I am not to be kept in the dark. As your wife, I have a right to know why you are throwing about good and lawful money. I toil and slave to keep your house decent and respectable at small cost, but I shall do so no longer. If you can afford to throw money into the gutter in one way, you can in another, and people will cry shame on you when, as they say, you are pampering up your sailors in such manner as will cause discontent among all others in the port while your wife and daughters are walking about in homespun. Mistress Mercy did not succeed in extracting the information she desired from her husband, who was, however, forced to fall back upon the defense that he had his reasons, but that he was pledged to say nothing concerning them. Pledged, she replied scornfully, and to whom are you pledged, I should like to know. I thought you were pledged to me and that you were bound to cherish and comfort me, which means, of course, that you were to have no secrets from me and to tell me all that I desire to know. But though Diggory kept the secret, albeit with much trouble and with many misgivings as to what would happen in the future when his wife came to learn of the important venture he had undertaken without consulting her, she nevertheless succeeded so far that, in order to pacify her, he was obliged to allow her a free hand in choosing, from his magazines, such pieces of cloth and silk for herself and the girls as she had a fancy to. This permission she did not abuse as to quality, for she knew well enough what was becoming, in the way of dress, for the wife of a merchant, and that it was not seemly for such a one to attire herself in apparel suited for the wives of nobles and ladies of the court. But Diggory groaned in spirit, although he prudently said nothing, at seeing that she took advantage of the present position to carry off a store which would amply suffice for at least two or three years' wearing for herself and the girls. 
"'You have done me a parlous ill turn, cousin Reuben,' he said sadly to his cousin, "'by bidding me hide this matter from my wife. "'A few more such secrets, and I should be a ruined man. "'Never before have I known her seized with a desire for such prodigality of vesture. "'I have looked upon her all these years as a sober and discreet woman, "'well content to wear what was quiet and becoming to her station.' but now truly my heart melted when i saw how she fingered the goods and desired john my assistant to cut off such lengths as she desired from some of my goodliest cloths tut tut cousin you exaggerate things greatly it is no wonder that mistress mercy seeing that you are flourishing greatly in trade and able to spend your money freely should deem it but fitting that she as your wife should make a braver show than heretofore. Besides, the girls are growing up and need to be a little bright and gay. Why, man, there are many London citizens who could not count their broad pieces with you, whose wives spend many times as much every year on their attire as Mistress Mercy has cost you now. Well, well, Reuben, there may be something in what you say, but no more secrets, or there is no saying what wild extravagance she might take in her head next time. She might quarrel with the house and insist upon a new one, furnished from top to bottom, or set her heart on a coach with running footmen. No, no, more secrets, or I shall be having her so set herself up that I shall be no more master of my own house. Roger was plied with many questions by his cousins, who tried alternately coaxing and pouting, to learn from him why it was that, as all told them, preparations were being made for the voyage of the swan such as were unknown before at Plymouth. All he could reply was that the ship was only being victualled, as all ships ought to be whose owners cared, as they should do for the comfort and health of their crews. More than that he could not say. He would not deny that he had certain ideas of his own as to the voyage, but if Cousin Diggory and his father thought it well to make no talk about the matter, it was not for him to say what were his thoughts about it. But we would tell nobody, Dorothy urged. Don't you think we could keep a secret as well as you can? That is just it, Cousin Dorothy, don't you see? If I were to tell you, it would be a proof that I could not keep a secret. And then, if you told it, I could not blame you for blabbing. I don't say there is any secret, but if there is, I must keep it. I know that you are going into danger, Reuben, else you would not have all those great guns they say there are on board. The great guns will keep us out of danger, you see. The more guns, the less danger. Come away, Agnes, Dorothy said, with an assumption of stateliness. Cousin Roger is altogether too smart for us. Let him keep his secrets if he will and let us go and help mother with her sewing. And so for the last two or three days before the swan sailed, there was a coolness between Roger and the girls, as well as between Diggory Beggs and his wife. At last the day came when everything was complete, the water casks filled, and the last packet and bale stored away in the hold. And even Reuben Hawkshaw admitted that there was nothing else he could think of requisite either for the safety or navigation of the ship, or the provisioning or health of the crew. 
The order was passed round for all the old hands to be aboard before sunset that evening, together with those who had been openly engaged to fill up the vacancies. As for the rest, the twelve recruiters each received private orders. Three of them were to bring down the men they had engaged to the wharf abreast of the Swan at eight o'clock, and to go off in the boat that would be awaiting them there under charge of Master Standing. Three others were to come half an hour later. The other six were to bring down their men at daybreak, so that all would get on board unnoticed. The last meal at Master Diggory's was but a dull one. The subject of the Swan and her voyage had, by common consent, been dropped altogether for the last day or two, and it was not until supper was over that Mistress Mercy and the girls knew that the hour of sailing was at hand. Then Reuben spoke up. We go on board tonight, Cousin Mercy, and shall get up our anchor and loose our sails the first thing in the morning. I know that you have been somewhat aggrieved at not learning more about our intentions, but it was not Cousin Diggory's fault that you have not been told. I do not seek to pry into matters which my husband thinks fit to conceal from me, she said coldly. Nevertheless, cousin, you are hurt, and I cannot blame you, seeing that it is natural that a woman should like to know what is passing around her. But I wish, before I go, that you should see that Diggory is not to blame in this matter. There is no harm in my telling you now that he stands not alone in this venture, but that others have joined with him. Now he himself, knowing you to be a circumspect woman, who could be trusted to keep to yourself anything that you might learn, would willingly have taken you into our counsels. But all women are not so discreet, and matters which it is very important should be kept secret might have leaked out, had it not been proposed that all concerned in the matter should bind themselves solemnly to each other to say no words about it even to their wives. And thus, you see, Diggory's lips have been sealed, and that not by any mistrust of you. It may be some time before it will be prudent for the truth about this voyage to be known, but in good time those concerned may think fit to relieve each other of this agreement they have entered upon, and to let their wives and others, who may be depended upon, into the secret. I wanted to tell you this before we sailed, for I should not like to go away feeling that you cherished aught of malice against me, for I have seen for some time that you have held me, as well as your husband, to blame. We are going on a long voyage, Cousin Mercy, and one from which it may well be that none of us will ever return to this good town of Plymouth. I am somewhat breaking my promise in saying this, and I rely upon you and the girls, repeating it to no one. It is a long and venturous journey, and one not without much peril. But if it succeeds, it will bring much honor, as well as wealth, to all concerned. And now, Cousin Mercy, as I have told you so much as that, I trust that we may part as we have always parted, in friendly and kindly fashion. You and your husband have been good friends to me and my boy, and have gone in that matter far beyond the ordinary bounds of kinship, and I should not like to start upon this voyage, knowing that there was a cloud between us. Mistress Mercy rose from her seat, walked round to Reuben Hawkshaw, and kissed him. "'Forgive me, Cousin Reuben,' she said, 
for my cross looks and shrewish ways. I see that I have acted altogether wrongly in the matter, and that neither you nor Diggory are to blame. I knew not that others were concerned, and thought that a mystery was being made, because it was considered that, did I know it, I should run out and blab it in the streets of Plymouth. Now I know how it is. I am well content as to that. But not so, at the thought of this unknown peril into which you are about to run, and I wonder that Diggory should adventure your life, and that of Roger, upon such an expedition. It is my own proposal, cousin Mercy, and Diggory has but yielded to my wishes. Roger is as hot for the adventure as I am, and we are both content to run what risks we may encounter, for the honor which we shall gain if we return safely home. And now, Roger, let us be going. Leave-takings are sad things, and the shorter they are made, the better. While these words had been said, the girls, who sat on either side of Roger, were silently making their peace with him, by furtive squeezes of his hands below the table, and they burst into tears as Roger and his father rose. "'Good-bye, Agnes,' Roger said. "'Good-bye, Dorothy,' and as he kissed her he whispered, "'If I return, I will bring you the prettiest trinkets ever seen in Plymouth. "'Bring back yourself, Roger, and I shall be more than content,' she replied. In another minute they were gone, Diggory Beggs taking his hat and starting with them, telling his wife that he should not return until morning, as he should go on board the Swan with them and remain until she sailed. "'You will not go before daybreak, Cousin Reuben?' Mistress Mercy asked. "'No, it will more likely be an hour after sunrise before we weigh anchor. Then I and the girls will be down on the wharf to see the last of you and wave our kerchiefs and wish you a pleasant voyage and a safe return.'" End of chapter 2